You're listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast, your home for the best of science fiction and fantasy with a twist. Whether you prefer your stories with dragons or aliens, your beverages shaken or stirred, fill your glass, relax, and join the conversation with your hosts, sci-fi and fantasy authors and proud tipsy nerds, Natalie Wright and R.S. Dabney. Welcome to Tipsy Nerds Book Club, episode two, Androids May Not Drink, But They Do Drink Bourbon. I'm your host, Natalie Wright, and with me is co-host Robin Dabney. Hello, Robin. Hey, Natalie. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's Friday, ready for the weekend. There is Tucson Festival of Books this weekend, two days of book nerding out. That'll be fun. Fantastic. This is a good way to start off that kind of weekend. Yeah. So what are we talking about today, Robin? So we are discussing uh, the book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick, uh, as well as the movies Blade Runner uh, from 1982 and Blade Runner 2049 from 2017. So kind of diving into this story that has been told in three different ways. Yeah, and I just want to point out the original book was uh, published in 1968, so we're talking quite a span of time, and that's one of the aspects I think as we get into this will will definitely be apparent. The time that the stories are told in is definitely reflected in these three quite different stories. Yeah, and what's in your glass today? That's a very important question. Yes. So I am excited about my drink today because I am definitely a lover of wine. Usually with this podcast, we will give you some fun and exciting cocktails. Today, we're keeping it a little simple because this story is set in a uh, post-apocalyptic sort of dystopian world where craft cocktails and the mixings aren't really available. So in the book, it's mentioned that there is a Chablis wine and bourbon that are consumed. And so I am choosing to go with the Chablis today, sort of in honor of John Isidore, who is, in my mind, one of the, or the only arguably uh, likable character in the book. And so in chapter 13, he goes to the Bank of America and pulls out uh, this bottle of Chablis he's been uh, keeping safe in case he ever encounters a girl. And so cheers, John. I'm drinking this for you. <laughs> and, uh, to, yeah. John, you know, to John. To um, John. Well, I'm sipping some Johnny Walker Black today. And my I use um, frozen balls. And I shouldn't have said that when you had wine in your mouth because you might spit yeah. it out. <laughs> balls! Uh, they're... <laughs> My husband got my husband got me some balls for Christmas. They're uh, they're they're uh, stainless steel balls that you freeze, you know, and then you put it in your whiskey and it doesn't. This, this just it keeps down. getting better. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I'm drinking my husband's balls. No, um, I'm drinking Johnny Walker Black, I, but I like it neat but cold. So there you go, in a nice little kind of Mad Men sort of glass. I was excited for this one because I was a huge fan of Blade Runner, the original movie with Harrison Ford back when it came out. You know, I'm like old enough that I was there in the theater. The very like cheesy sort of graphics with the car flying, like very Tron sort of at the time. It's like, whoa, and all the noir kind of stuff and Rachel. 
I was very into that, but I'd never read the book. I was very excited and interested to read this book. And and you, Robin, had you read the book or seen either of the movies before we decided to do this for Tipsy Nerds? So I um I was not born when Blade Runner came out. <laughs> uh, and, and it was one, you know, my parents were never really sci-fi fantasy type people. They they liked the Lord of the Rings. So I got really into that. I sort of came to sci-fi fantasy on my own volition. So I actually had never seen the movie Blade Runner. My first encounter with this story was when I read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And so I have since watched both Blade Runner movies, but uh, it's, I'm interested to see our different takes on things based off of the avenue in which we came into this story. For me, and we've sort of talked about this, but I still at this point after seeing both movies and reading the book, the book I think is still my favorite. And we can decide how to dive into this <laughs> because we may have some yeah. some differing opinions. Where do you want to start uh, unpacking this fantastic sort of story that we've got here? Yeah, I think we should start with the source material, the book. And I have to say, Robin and I had talked about this pre-production about the book and we neither of us had finished it entirely, but Robin was further along than me. I had a lot of problems with the book, but I have to say, Robin, at the end, I sort of liked it. Good. Okay. I feel like you have to actually read this entire book to see the brilliance of what Philip K. Dick is doing in the book. Because I, you start with Deckard and his stupid sheep. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my God, what in the fudge is up with this guy? And, and uh, you know, it's this electric sheep. It was very, I really enjoyed the beginning of the book. And it really, you know, drew me in. But if you've seen the Blade Runner movie first and you've got this vision of Harrison Ford, a hot young Harrison Ford, by the way, you know, and then you get the Philip, the Deckard in the book, it's like they're, they're not the same guy at all. So I think because I came into it, having watched the movie first, you know, it kind of threw me off a bit. I never think Deckard is very likable in the book from beginning to end, but but by the end, and that lasts like, what, 30 pages, so much happens in the book right, that yeah. brings it full circle. And I think for me, uh, going into reading the book first, the title of the book is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And so when I get this, I'm like, what? <laughs> immediately just the title makes me think, uh, what the fudge? Um, but I liked, and then the, in the first chapter, it explains what that there is an electric sheep in the story. I really thought that that was just this obscure title that didn't actually match. But I kind of liked that, but this Deckard that is like trying to take care of this fake sheep to keep up this appearance. Again, I read the book before the movie. To me, when I watched the movie, it's and I it's released in 1982, but it, that Deckard was sort of kind of the cheesy action hero of the 80s, which was fine. But I kind of enjoyed the more of the weird, like philosophical bent that the book took on both Deckard and all of the characters. The movie for me was a lot of fun. But it lacked, this is the original Blade Runner, it lacked that huge philosophical discussion that I think the book had. So while the characters weren't necessarily likable <laughs> and their actions were, you sort of scratched your head a lot of the time and you thought these are almost caricatures of what this guy in the 60s thinks people would be like in the future. But there was this great philosophical discussion the whole time throughout the book that I really, really liked that I didn't get in that first movie. I absolutely agree. And like I said, I think, you know, towards the end, at this point, huge spoiler alert. If you haven't read the book or watch the movies, pause, go read them and come back. 
mean, he introduces the sheep and we get that animals are ex- basically extinct or going extinct um, and they're rare in this futuristic world. And I totally get that. But until the very end, I really wasn't sure why there was so much attention paid to that. But when Rachel goes and kills his damn goat, you know, like, <laughs> that was really tragic for me. <laughs> fuck you moment, right? It's like, I want to kill your goat. That to me, that action, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like, you know, it has a payoff, you know? So the story payoff there is, is that she yeah. kills his goat. It's, yeah, it really brings the whole story kind of around. And, and the spider, what? Oh, the, the spider, androids, that was so crushing for me. <laughs> I know, it's really, and poor it, John, you know, and his spider. But all of that, from that moment kind of forward to me in the book and the mercerism and all that, it just kind of wraps it all up. By the end, he's back with his wife and he's screwed a, an android. He, so he stepped out on her, or has he? Because that's a good question, audience. Like, is it really infidelity? If you're, if you're, I mean, well, like, like, isn't that the question of like, did he? Yeah. Isn't that the question of the whole book? Like, what is life? And so, and that includes, you know, his infidelity, but it's like, he's taking, again, it opens with him taking really good care of this electric sheep, yet he's going out and tasked to kill these electric humans who are actually much more lifelike than this damn sheep. But still, you know, the sheep has this meaning, whereas the humanoid androids don't. And so the whole question throughout the book is, what is life? And again, I think that infidelity, that moment with Rachel when they're drinking bourbon, just like you, (laughs) Um, and they have this moment again, what is life? And does that count? I think that's the the fascinating thing. And then the book ends with this electric toad that he finds, and it sort of brings it full circle back to this, yeah. again, what is life? And I, I'm that's what I found fascinating about the book was just that every kind of detail in there added to that conversation and that thought process that it gave me as a reader. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think one of the stumbling blocks for me in enjoying the book especially early on, and I would say through about the midway point, was instances of pretty sexist, you know, attitudes by Deckard in particular with women. And now, you know, this was written in 68. And as we go through this list of the 100 best is voted on by listeners of, of NPR, NPR listeners, we're probably going to find this in a lot of these stories from this pre-modern, it's the modern era, but it's, it's, pre-2000s, for sure. And this is one where, you know, like Deckard, throughout the book, really, whenever he's thinking about a woman or he meets a woman, it's pretty much his automatic go-to response is, is she stacked? You know, (laughs) it's like, is she sexually (laughs) pleasing to me? And her value is sort of weighed based on that. And so very common thinking for men in that era and unfortunately for a lot of men in our modern era as well. But that really kind of pulled me out of the story a lot because I was like, Deckard's such a douchebag, you know, (laughs) that I was having a hard time really appreciating the story. But after our check-in, Robin's insistence that, you know, look, we got to put that aside, help me to kind of push past that and ignore, ignore some of that. I think for me, the, the, the thought process on that is to take, because we are going to run into probably some really rampant sexism as we go through this list, as you said, 
is to take, like, if that was 2019, I think we could totally slay that male author for being like, come on, dude, it's 2019. Let's let's get with the times. But I think what we will have to do and what I did with this book is to compartmentalize the sexism into a time, a place, man in 1968. What were his views of women? What were women's roles at that time? Um, the really funny thing that I want to throw in here about kind of the sexism that we talked about is that you have this book that was written in 1968, but was taking place in 2021, which is next year. And he ha- you have androids who are so human-like, they're almost non-discernible from humans. You have people colonizing planets and space, all of this futuristic technology. We've destroyed ourselves with nuclear war, but women are still secretaries and like sexual objects and expected to cook. And so it's really funny that he had all these projections of technology and evolution in the world, but women didn't move forward at all, which totally makes me giggle at this point because it's funny we're not colonizing other planets one year from when this takes place i have an alexa and a roomba but they are not even close (laughs) to being human-esque but here (laughs) you and i sit two women having this podcast and so it's like haha philip k dick you are wrong like (laughs) the technology didn't necessarily advance that far but women did so i like sort of got a giggle out of that Yes, I love it. I'm interested, just as an aside, to see as we work through this list, how women of the era wrote and if we feel there's a difference. So for example, we'll probably, I'm I'm sure on the list is uh, The Heart of Darkness or something else by Ursula K. Le Guin. So Uh, The Left Hand of Darkness. Left Hand of Darkness. That's it. Thank you. So just we'll we'll keep that uh, out there as a little bubble that, that maybe we'll as we work through this list, uh, we'll talk about how women of the era might have written differently about the sex roles. But um, the book isn't about that, and and we get that. But it's just you know it's there. And if you read the book now, I, I would hope most people would go, "Wow, that's like you know it'll it'll hit you like, well, that's a really sexist thing to say." And Deckard's very rapey there with Rachel, but you know, <laughs> I don't think it would get published in 2019 as is. Yeah, someone, an editor would probably have a little bit of an issue with that. But for the philosophy, it's, I really, really enjoyed the writing and absolutely on the philosophical plane, it it brings in something that the original Blade Runner movie doesn't really touch at all. And it was also, when you watch the movie, like they changed it so much, you know, I mean, Deckard's not married, not that the wife in the book was a major player, but she's bookended on either end. She's there at the beginning and there at the end and for good purpose and, and really helps solidify the story. But interestingly, in the, in the movie, he's not married and he ends up with Rachel. Like she's not out to kill him, which is a real big change. And so I was wondering like, you know, why they chose to change it so much. Do you have any thoughts on like, what did you think about the movie in terms of the changes that they made? And um, did you think they were good changes or? I think they were good changes from a like Hollywood standpoint of it was entertaining. It was action packed. It always seems like when they make a, an adaptation of a movie from a book that they always try to enhance this sort of love story for whatever reason. Um, we'll talk about that also uh, in the next episode with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. But for me, I don't, I'm not a, a this, you know, I'm not speaking for all women. Me personally, I'm not this hopeless romantic that needs a love story to make the book wonderful. I felt like Decker was still a little rapey in Blade Runner because there's a scene where he like is trying to kiss Rachel and she doesn't want it. And he like forces his kiss upon her, Yeah, which is fine. For me, I thought that 
bigger fan of the book. The, the movie was entertaining. But the changes for me hyped up the entertainment value, but decreased the philosophical value of the story for me. So the the issue with him and Rachel in the book where they are basically enemies, um, they sleep together and then she kills this live goat that he has sort of purchased to assuage his guilt over the artificial life he's taken is kind of how I took that. And then in the the movie, they're sort of more lovey. There's not the same kind of, I guess, back and forth tension in that regard, at least. I don't know that I didn't, it was fine. It was entertaining, but it didn't really add a whole lot for me. I was sad about the change with John from the book to the movie where he was sort of not, I, I mean, I, he was Sebastian, but Sebastian was such a different character than John kind of in the book. And so I get that they have to kind of shrink it down and make changes. It was still entertaining. But again, for me, like the the biggest flaw in the, the movie was that they just did not include the spider being dismembered because that was just so crushing for me. It's like, I read this book and I don't really care about any of the characters. I am like a total arachnophobe. I don't like spiders. But by this point, I'm like, so upset that this android is ripping apart the spider. That was the like biggest emotional reaction I had in the whole book. And so for me, it's like, if the movie had included the spider, maybe I would have liked it better. I don't know. I think they changed it for entertainment values. But uh, do you have a thought on that? Or what is the like, what is the biggest change or difference that you either like really liked or that you wish they had left it? Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I would say for the original 1982 movie, I remember liking it so much more at the time. And I've probably over the years seen it some other time in, in intervening years. And when I watched it recently, I have to say I was like, really? You know, like it seemed a little, first of all, the effects and everything are a little cheesy. But honestly, at the end, I was like fast forwarding through the very end, kind of like chase scenes and there's a very long kill scene with that last android that was like, okay, Rutger Hauer, he's awesome. We do like to see him on the screen, but really do we need to drag out his death for like 20 minutes? And I'm not exaggerating. I do think that scene's like something like 15 to 20 minutes long. I would say I did not enjoy the movie very much, you know, now. And, And definitely the book was better. I definitely agree with you that having Deckard like fall in love with Rachel and for them to be like, you know, a couple at the end, that's, that really just flies in the face of like, I think the whole point of the story in a way. So I wasn't sure why they did that. And again, it's like that idea that Hollywood has that, yes, like as an aside, The Giver by Lois Lowry is one of my favorite all-time books. And then the movie, you know, they just, they make this fake relationship for the for the young people that does, it's like, why, why do you need to do that? You know, like not every book has to, not every story has to be a romance story. Anyway, as an aside. Yeah. The only one I would argue that, that did it well was Aragorn and Arwen in Lord of the Rings. That's the only time that I feel like a enhanced love interest has helped a story not detracted from it. Yeah. So that's another episode. So yeah, in the future. That, is a, <laughs> that is definitely a future episode. Looking forward to that conversation. But yeah, so I, I think we're probably in agreement on this one. We give the book more of an A and the and the original Blade Runner movie more of a B or C. Uh, and and you know, like I don't have any issue with the fact that you deviate from the book because I I get that you need to make it more entertaining and not as philosophical. But the ways that they deviated I'm not so sure we're really good storytelling. I think one of the biggest things about the original Blade Runner that sticks in my mind 
is more the look and the feel and the movie making of it. The noir feel, Rachel and her smoking, you know, she's like, and her hair. I just, I can absolutely remember sitting in theater thinking, you know, she was just like all that, you know, I want to go do my hair like that and like smoke a cigarette like that. And just it, the whole feel of that movie was cool as shit. And so I think it, yeah, you know, (laughs) so even I will interject now, even now watching it, my husband and I watched it this last week. And even the cheesy stuff you're mentioning, we really enjoyed. We we kept commenting, like, this is really good for 1982. And and so I really did appreciate, so the story fell flat for me, but like you're saying, the cinematography, the costume department, <laughs> what they did with like Rachel and whatnot, I feel like it was really on point. Like I could nerd out to the cinematography. It was just the story that fell a little flat for me. But I, I would give the, the, the cinematography yeah. an A, the story a C on Blade Runner the movie. Right, absolutely. And then, oh, we can't leave Blade Runner from 1982 without mentioning Rachel's super high collars and her shoulder pads. She, you know, and those giant bangs that, that gets the award for the all time highest shoulder height reached. I think it was like, you know, I guess that's like what the future (laughs) is supposed to look like. And, and interestingly, again, in 1982, they're imagining the future of women's clothing. And here we are, I haven't seen a shoulder pad in years. So, um, they kind of failed on that. I, I haven't worn a shoulder pad in my entire life. And I was born in 1988 just to date it. So I, I'm 31 years old and I've never worn a shoulder pad. So there we go. Girl, you don't know what you missed. Shoulder pads were all, all, all that. I'm kidding. They, they were pretty, I did. Yeah. I wore lots of shoulder pads. I'm sure someday they will come yeah, back. Maybe we'll see. But okay. So we can't leave our discussion though, without getting into 2049, because it's, like a completely different animal than the prior two things we've talked about. So did you have a chance to watch Blade Runner 2049? I did, yes. And I completely agree with you. And this is not to knock filmmaking from the 80s and before, but uh, Philip K. Dick in his technological advanced brain when he was writing things would have been very proud of Blade Runner 2049, I think. I I feel like that was a great story, great cinematography, I like that it was different enough from the original content of the book that there wasn't really even a a comparison, sort of. It took different aspects and characters and lineage from the original content. But for me, it was a brand new story, which was really cool. It was well done. And it took, I didn't notice a whole lot of rampant sexism, which is nice, <laughs> you know, a nice deviation yeah. from the, the first two. But yeah, for me, I, I, I really enjoyed Blade Runner 2049. I would give this one an A when we're comparing. I liked that it took the story in a different direction, still kept the same sort of feel in ways, but really enhanced it into a story that kept the philosophy and the Hollywood entertainment value. When I originally saw it in the theater, I walked out and wanted to immediately see it again. And I remember feeling back in 2017 when I saw it, really bummed that it wasn't doing well at the box office because I personally felt at the time that it was one of the best sci-fi movies I'd ever seen. And I and I think part of why I felt that way was because when you see this movie, you've got that interplay of, uh, first of all, great score. Oh yeah, absolutely. So that 
that's incredible. And then this great cinematography, direction, everything is clicking. Everything's coming together, acting. And then the story, I'm a huge fan of Blade Runner 2049. I would love to hear people's thoughts and comments and argue with me that it's not, agree with me that it is, it's cool either way. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts on on that. And if you haven't see it, seen it, I really recommend that you do if you're a fan of the sci-fi genre, because I think there's a lot a lot to take in with it. Uh, I just have to geek out for a moment on the, on the whole direction of cinematography. I love when they do stuff like this. It starts with this throwback to Rachel's eye, which is an important component of the first movie, but you don't really get it so much in the book, but that whole concept of the void Kampf test and, you know, Deckard's testing her. So in 2049, we actually see Rachel's eye and that's it. We just kind of get a close-up of her eye. And then we move directly into what is then the current. And there's this shot from above of this big, I guess, uh, like building. And he's coming in and it is a reflection of the eye. I mean, it's just like, you know, there's thought that went into that. There's um, a lot of consideration of how they're going to artistically bring you into the story. So I was like, yay, kudos, kudos for doing something artistically and not just schlock and celluloid together and, and then putting a bunch of fight scenes in there. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I can't say enough good about it. And, and then it's just such like a heart-wrenching ending. And I don't want to say much more about it because a lot of people probably haven't seen it, but I just felt, I remember crying. I felt really like heart-wrenched by the end. But I agree with you so much, Robin. I, I feel like 2049 gets more back into the philosophy of Philip K. Dick's story and really pulls at the, you know, gets the heart of that and does it well in a movie. I agree. It did. It had some really nice twists, which I am a sucker for like twists and sort of these aha moments and agreed with you on this one. I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but the twists all lead to kind of more of that philosophical thought. And then the moment at the end, like you're talking about that, you're just sort of sad. And the fact that it can make you sad over (laughs) this particular, the result of this particular twist, this isn't going to make sense if you haven't seen it. But to me, that's just brilliant storytelling, brilliant filmmaking. And I would recommend for Blade Runner, the original, it's kind of a cult classic. It's fun. It's entertaining. If you're into this storyline, you have to watch it just because it's part of the package. But 2049 really as a movie is just well done in every way. I I wouldn't even call it a cult classic because a lot of cult classics are sort of silly and have their own flaws. We just love them for different wonderful things. But this one, just as a movie, is, is really fantastically done. Yeah, I remember, I think it got a lot of awards for things like cinematography and stuff like that. And uh, deservedly so. It's it's a really well done movie. And I think, again, gets gets back into that whole philosophy piece of what is alive? What counts as alive? What, like, what are the rules and the laws about the living and dead? And the whole idea of killing, you know, of Blade Runner's killing and stuff. It's It's all there, I think, in 2049. Yeah, definitely. And and I think that's something that if you are into this sort of story, I think that's kind of the critical piece not to miss is this, the philosophical discussion, the life piece of it. For me, not including Mercerism and the empathy box in the original movie also, it's like, because that's fascinating, but it's also sort of 
the fact that interesting, the fact that these people are in this world where they have to have an empathy box to sort of emote and relate to other people. It's just all these little details that, you know, we don't necessarily think of, or we think of in our, in our daily lives, but we keep rushing forward with technology, which is fantastic. But I think all of these stories we will run into are sort of warnings about the future or just warnings about what we should consider as human beings, sort of not to not to forget about what makes us human. And I think that's what this story is about, is not forgetting what makes us human. Or if we do forget, like these wonderful folks have, is, is remembering. And I think that's what Deckard does in the book, is he begins to remember. And that's probably why it brought it home for you, because suddenly he went from this kind of sexist caricature to slightly human, showing a little bit more of his human side. I think that's so well said. And there's this piece in the book too, where I remember feeling like, although it's not explicitly foretelling what would happen in the future, there's a piece of it that feels very like, much like he nailed it. We don't actually have an empathy box where we put our hands on it and we dial in a feeling. It's not exactly like that. But I was really reminded a lot of Facebook and Instagram and social media and Twitter when I was reading it because I was thinking about how or, and, and television and just all media together in our modern world where we kind of are being told how to feel, you know? I mean, you kind of dial in a certain level and you kick back and if you take that all in, you're going to feel a certain way. So you can kind of dial in a feeling. Yes. You know, for me, if I want to feel really happy, um, you know, I get on Instagram and I'm seeing all these like happy pictures and, you know, it's like, yay, everyone's living a happy life. Yay. Anyway, it wasn't explicitly foretelling that, but it was to me the feeling of allowing media to define our feelings for us. Someone else has created it. We dial in, we take it in, now we feel it, right? So I think he has kind of nailed it in a way. That is fascinating. Yeah, that I... I... I had not thought of that, but that is like absolutely right. Um, If I want to get angry, I can get on Facebook and get into political arguments. Or if I want to be happy, I go to the snakes wearing hats page and I giggle at people (laughs) who have put a top hat on a snake. And And I'm not grabbing any like diodes or handles, but like, yeah, I mean, people share when they're sad or happy and we're all tuning in and we do take that in and it does change our moods and our feelings. And so Wow, that is a fascinating, (laughs) I had not thought of that take on on our modern 2020 empathy box. It's our social media programs. Well, and then the advertising on top of that. I mean, the advertisers know that. So they pay money to track, to get the tracking information on where we are, (laughs) like physically where we are, and then our eyes where they are on our internet. And then they attack us, (laughs) attack us. Listen to my value judgment there. They show us <laughs> the ads that uh, will, they know will appeal to our sensibility based on what we've been looking at. And, you know, when you have the sense you've been watched, well, it's because you are. And so, yeah, between, yeah, the whole thing together, you'd go, wow, you know, something from 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, some of these writers were really, I think, tapped into their moment so that they could foresee uh, where it was going, you know, where it's 
where it all was going to lead. Even if they couldn't see the specific mechanism of how that would be delivered, they still could see the zeitgeist of the social you know, construct, the culture. So that's just amazing to me. And I now am a you know, believer in Philip K. Dick. I've heard the nerddom for years. You know, you should read Philip K. Dick and I hadn't before. So I can now see why people recommend him because he definitely, um, some, called him, some call him a prophet. And he claimed, I think, do you see some videos of him? I think he talks about stepping into the future. Maybe he did. Maybe it was the drugs he did. I don't know. But um, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was going to say, I think we're going to run into, you know, it's like these guys aren't necessarily Nostradamus. It's more that human beings are predictable and we follow certain patterns um, and are driven by very biological things that may change and evolve as time goes on and technology evolves. But, you know, you have and we will get into these as the show goes on 1984, Brave New World, all of these kind of imaginings of these people. And enough of the things in that come true that we could call them prophets, but really it's just, it's just human nature repeating itself with more robots and computers and high-tech equipment. And so, you know, for me, it's like, and you and I both write science fiction and fantasy. And so the same could be said. I, I, I am not sitting here with a crystal ball tapping into the future. I am taking the zeitgeist of the time and writing my bent on it. And, you know, in 50 years, somebody might be like, hey, she knew this would happen. And here I'm here to tell you that, no, I don't. I'm just, <laughs> I just, people are just predictable. And you just add a little bit of technology and flair and get you a story out. But <laughs> I don't know, maybe he was a prophet. Who knows? I am not right. here to say whether he was or not, but it is fascinating. I have really enjoyed his take on what we would be like, because we will be around next year when 2021 rolls around. Right, we will. I think this about wraps it up for for our conversation on do androids dream of electric sheep, Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. Robin, uh, how's your Shibli doing? Your glass almost empty. It's it's really wonderful. And it's it's 1115 here where I am in the morning before lunch. And the fact that I am already drinking some chilled white wine is just really a lovely thing. I, I'm really enjoying this new job. And I just keep thinking of Jimmy Buffett's song that it's five o'clock somewhere to sort of defend <laughs> my behavior. Um, what, <laughs> one thing I really, I kind of want to throw out there, there's, there was a quote from the book that I really enjoyed and I kind of want to put it out there and see if anybody has any thoughts or feedback on it. But this was a quote from Mercer who I, I felt like was a really interesting character for many reasons in the book. But the quote was, you will be required to do wrong no matter where you go. It is the basic condition of life to be required to violate your own identity. And that is really fitting to the book. But I kind of want to throw that out there and get people's thoughts. If you want to send us a message on uh, through our email, through social media. But do you agree with that? Do you agree that part of the human condition is that you must violate your identity? Or do you not agree with that? Because this book was about philosophy. So let's end it with a philosophical question for everyone. That's a good question. I have no thoughts on that question right this moment perhaps because of the Johnny Walker black <laughs> or perhaps because my synapses just yeah. <laughs> don't fire that quickly. But yeah, that is a great question. It's surprising that I could even ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Tipsy Nerds Book Club and join us next week for episode number three of Tipsy Nerds, where we will just be discussing another great 
classic book that so many people love, a little bit lighter, but probably no less philosophical. Would you agree, Robin? Our next Absolutely. offering is no less philosophical. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. um, our only hint to you right now will be this. Don't panic and come back next week for episode three. And we'll tell you what's in our glass then. So until then, cheers, tipsy nerds. Cheers, tipsy nerds. And a happy reading. Thank you for listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the fun with your friends and family. Love what you heard and want the fun to continue? Head over to Patreon and become a patron of the Tipsy Nerds podcast. We love our patrons. Want a recipe for a cocktail you heard here? You can find recipes as well as show notes, episode transcripts, and helpful links on our website, tipsynerdsbookclub.com. And as always, join us next week for a new episode of Libations and Geeking Out. Cheers.